the only thing worse than a root canal is looking for a job on the internet. Hello everybody, this is Anthony Moore with Career Daily. I am here to put the human back in human resources. Let me be your competitive advantage on the job market. It is dog eat dog out there. Our research companies, new industries, I'll dig around, I'll figure out who some of the hiring leaders are, and I'll post all this information on our exclusive Facebook networking group. You'll also hear amazing interviews from professionals that I'm interviewing all across the country. Some are inspiring. Some are very informative. Some duds. I'll leave the duds out. Stay tuned for today's episode. Today we are joined by a supply chain consultant. He is an expert in many areas and specialties. I'll just give us kind of a brief overview of of what he's really known for. Solution integration architect, blockchain use case specialist, fintech applications for the supply chain industry, enterprise to enterprise integration, NAFTA cross-border market expertise, and TMS and carrier software implementation. Now, in addition to this, he was also the keynote speaker for the Los Angeles County Economic Development Corporation, where he wrote and delivered the keynote address, The Future of Supply Chain in Los Angeles. He also has a really interesting, very well, very much needed nonprofit that we'll talk about a little bit later called Karma Delivers. It focuses on helping communities rebuild after disasters happen and also supplying the much-needed information and data to customers such as food banks. Very important topic, as we, as we know, a lot of these food banks are running short on food. Welcome to Career Daily, Michael Carmody. Hey, thank you so much, Tony, for being here. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your program. Well, thank you. Um, I'm really glad we had a chance to finally connect. You're over in Texas, aren't you? That's right. I'm working out of North Texas these days. Well, um, we definitely welcome you from the Lone Star State. We're uh, we're over here in Georgia, and I think what I would love to do is we just kind of dive into this topic. It's such a huge topic, you know, the supply chain. Can you just give us a general state of the union? Like what an overview of what is happening right now? Well, it's absolutely um, interesting times in the supply chain, that's for sure. Unfortunately, um, there's a lot of fear and a lot of people pulling back. What we've really seen across the industry is a lack of demand. People have stopped shipping primarily because for different reasons, some part of their business has been shut down where their employees or their customers don't have access to their normal goods and services. What we're seeing in multiple layers, earlier we saw it in the ports with the cancellations from China because of what was happening in, in the pandemic effects on the Chinese side, when that lack of demand hit the U.S. ports, it just rippled through the markets, especially the trucking markets, where April is one of the lowest freight volume markets uh, that we've seen in, in probably anyone's lifetime. And so this is now, unfortunately, hitting multiple industries, multiple jobs that rely on certain industries and People have always said in the automotive industry, it's not just the jobs of the UAW workers in those plants, but it's all the businesses that support that community and that organization around them, the restaurants and the truck drivers and the janitorial staffs and the people that you don't even think about. There's a whole other layer of jobs that have been impacted by these shutdowns. And really that lack of demand has just 
led most organizations to start focus on uh, cutting costs, which unfortunately leads to a lot of job losses. But they're they're mostly trying to hoard on to their cash, keep their assets functioning that they can that are revenue generating, and trying to minimize any losses or exposure to the downside turn in the markets on the financial markets. Well, maybe you could explain something. You just said lack of demand, so maybe. Maybe we need to get a little more clarity around that because when I go into the grocery store, there is a a huge demand for paper products, but the shelves are empty. So when you say lack of demand, maybe there's a different meaning there? Uh, Yes, I was talking very high level in general across the market. But you look across the industry verticals, you'll see different industries are actually spiking and seeing their, you know, almost their their peak season or holiday season type activities of which they weren't planning for, they really got caught essentially unaware that that spike in demand was going to hit their products. And the paper products specifically, the sanitizers, all of that stuff is seeing extreme growth. The the networks have been um, depleted and those organizations are continually running nonstop to replenish those uh, those products across the network. Uh, before the podcast started, you and I were talking a little bit offline about this concept of old school versus new school in terms of supply chain. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and it usually is that particular topic comes into discussions around cloud applications for execution in the supply chain. And when we say execution, we mean the, the actual work that's being done. So when I'm referring to our transportation management systems, warehouse management systems, ERPs or enterprise resource planning. These types of softwares are the backbone of every organization that has employees and has products in their supply chain, if they're a manufacturer, if they're a hospital, if they're a grocery chain, all of these things are in play behind the scenes within the system stack or the the infrastructure of that organization. The old school way of doing it is to have those enterprise systems on premise inside of the organization on hard drive computers and servers right there on site. It was very secure and very robust in terms of what can be done with that, but it wasn't very, you could share that across your network. The new school along comes the cloud-based systems, which are hosted in the cloud on the internet. You enter through those systems through the internet. So you go through your your Chrome, um, Microsoft Internet Explorer, which is now um, Microsoft Edge. So those are the, the platforms that you go into it, just like you would go to any website. But now you're going to work in the internet onto that website hosted on some farm that could be anywhere. It really doesn't matter to you. You're just going into the application to do your work. And that could be rating a carrier, dispatching a carrier, tendering the load over to someone that missed the load and you have to find a new carrier to cover that load. So there's all kinds of work that happens within the transportation management system. The same thing is happening inside the warehouse with orders that are being picked, especially on the e-commerce. So that type of business is really, really taken off with COVID now with everybody online shopping, the Amazons, Walmart.com, these organizations, Target, these have just taken on a whole new level of demand because everyone's at home and bored and nothing else to do except try to get their normal stuff online. 
Right. Because of the lockdown, they're now forced to go online and kind of enter into that e-commerce portal. That's right. I mean, other than financial, what, I mean, what are the, the setbacks or reasons that a company would not want to move to cloud? Obviously, that's your background. You can help people design those kind of systems. I mean, what, what's the argument against, against it versus you know, more visibility? So there's really, um, there's kind of two schools within the, the CIO camps around the world. Um, one is security. Those that fear the cloud are afraid that it's not secure enough. They don't have control. They're not close enough to the servers themselves, or they're trying to protect their team or their products that they've built in-house over time, and they don't want to outsource those products to a software vendor. They want to keep them in-house. So you get some territory uh, protection from organizations that want to keep their systems longer. Uh, but sometimes they have systems that are better. They're, it's hard to say. We Across my client base, I've seen some internal systems that are far better than the applications you can buy off the shelf in the marketplace. I see. So you've got these homegrown solutions. They could be proprietary or they've just created them to, to such a, a standard that they just don't feel comfortable releasing that control into the cloud to another company that's managing it. Okay. That means that makes sense, but can they still achieve the same level of uh, efficiencies that are now being created through, you know, these new TMS solutions? The short answer is yes, but it takes a lot of investment. Um, and it takes a lot of development, which are human coders to actually build and, and you know, create the features within these proprietary systems that are going to rebel or, or be compared to what you can buy off the shelf. Now, as the shelf products are getting so much better, so much faster and cheaper, that equation is dynamic. It's changing almost on a month-to-month -month basis where you have to look at your internal budget, your internal staff, and say, you know, am I doing this the right way? Or are there products out there or services that I can outsource save money and have a better experience for either my end user or or more profit for my executives and shareholders. It really depends on on the equation. Well here in Atlanta we I, I mean I remember several companies that bought a really expensive ERP system. You mentioned the enterprise resource planning tool, the ERP. SAP is you know, the gold standard for, for most big, large, you know, manufacturers. But at the same time I've heard some real nightmares if that's not installed properly. So you probably have a this, you know, conception or this preconceived notion that these companies, they know they're going to get into this big investment and they've probably heard about the nightmares of some of these other ERPs. Now, this is not an ERP, the TMS, but but in the back of their minds, they, they know these things can, you know, can go awry. Absolutely. Um, and they, what we see as a trend in the marketplace is, to minimize some of that risk, they look for techno technological partners or implementation partners that will help them bring the knowledge and in a short amount of time, quickly get that, that software, enterprise software in place, tested and to the users so that it can bring the value that the executives were looking for when they made that purchase. So we've all seen the, well, we think we're seeing the effects of COVID in the supply chain. A lot of things have been broken or they've been disrupted. So, I mean, how does the company go about reestablishing a new supply chain? I think we talked a little bit about this offline, right? If you've got, um, if, if you're bringing your products, your supplies from, say, China, 
and you realize there's a, just a big public backlash. They don't want products that are coming from China. They don't want anything sourced from China. And you say, okay, well, that's great. Let's just go ahead and build something here. Uh, you call that what nearshoring. So what's, what are the issues? What are the problems or challenges that these companies are now faced with from moving from a global supply chain to this nearshoring, you know, fancy? Correct. So nearshoring presents um, several advantages, but a lot of them, almost all of them are more costly than the existing supply chains that they have today. There's no, there's no real country or labor force that can make products as cheaply as the Chinese. And, and I think everyone in the, in the world ultimately ends up in that equation. When you're looking to find the lowest cost and the lowest cost is driving your business decisions, China is going to be in your equation and in your future. As the priorities of the business decisions are not so much about the lowest cost, but let's say the higher value or the better experience or a larger impact within the community, then people will start to look at where can they find the supplier, the raw materials that they need to make their products? Where can they find the people to hire that have the skills and qualifications for their, to offer their services? And who's got the ideas out there that are beneficial to both the buyer and the seller? And how, and how can we measure that impact um, in terms of the, the decision-making of the general public? That's, that really, within this new COVID equation, is, is up for conversation. We don't really know how the, the general public's going to react. We don't even know if we're going to be able to uh, open up our schools in the fall because we're all really kind of looking around going, boy, this is already bad. We don't want this to get worse. So even though here in Texas things are open, uh, I see a lot of hesitation within the people I know of really going anywhere because um, things are really close and things are really happening right now across um, at least the Dallas metro area. Um, cases are still increasing. I think you also mentioned something that was kind of interesting about the uh, nearshoring was that uh, you had some facts and statistics. You were talking about the the amount of warehouse space that Amazon owns in the U.S. So, like, if you you may have the idea that okay, cost is not going to be our number one driver, right? We want to give our customers uh, peace of mind, let's say, and they're willing to pay a little bit more money. So, what are the challenges that companies are going to now be faced with as they try to nearshore? Um, I think the first thing they're going to really struggle with is finding someone that can make something to their specs at the price range budgets that they're that they want to go to market with. Um, the expectations we had before COVID nineteen are probably going to have to be adjusted in terms of what's reasonable and and what the expectations of the market will bear, and what is the value that those products and services are going to bring. So it's it's really an interesting place in that regards. Challenge wise, I. It, it really depends. Are you going to be able to find the, the labor force? You know, it, it seems now the other challenge that we're seeing is not everybody can participate in the jobs that are out there because they're in the cloud and the internet. There's large parts of this country that there are no internet connections and you can't find, you know, affordable internet. So it's, there's parts of the labor force that are going to be underserved, unfortunately, in the near, in the near term. So nearshoring is going to have uneven impact where you'll see some places rebounding quickly other places will be struggling for quite some time you mentioned though as well um the, the there's a shortage of warehouse spacing as well 
That's right. So this uh, this also is creating this impact of a surge in demand for available warehousing space. Um, a lot of organizations pushed their imports before the holidays last year. And so that ate up a lot of available warehouse space. And then when Amazon obviously has been growing and, and putting down, seems like a new warehouse every week, they're opening up somewhere. And they are probably, at, at, you know, more than anyone else, impacting the entire commercial warehouse market in terms of space availability. When we look across different markets right now, it's, it's sometimes not uncommon to see a particular market in the 90 to 95% occupied uh, of available warehouse space in any particular um, zip code that services that particular city. And I don't think we've ever seen that, you know, in, in decades. That's staggering. I've, I've never heard that but number before. I know. I mean, and then you figure, of course, you've got Walmart and they're, their distribution centers, I'm sure they have warehouse space, you know, in addition to just their retail footprint. So you're basically just saying there's not enough, not enough warehouses, not enough. Builders can't build warehouses fast enough right now. Just what we need in our town. Isn't that what everybody needs is more, <laughs> more warehouse space. Well, the good news is they're being spread out and more and more rural areas are picking up these warehouses. So it's not completely um, an urban phenomenon. The urban warehouses are getting smaller, actually, and faster because they want to have a, a closer proximity, but it's not all the products will be held in that particular urban warehouse, just the fast-moving stuff. If you're going to order something that's kind of slow-moving, it'll come from a, a further-out warehouse, even though they can still make it. Oh, right. Uh, uh, slower demand, whatever, uh, a longer uh, curve for... Reso, uh, you know, rebuying. I got it. If it's something you rebuy all the time, then you need to have it closer. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's why they can make those footprints smaller. And what you'll see is these warehouses are going taller and they're automated. The other thing we really, really haven't talked about is robotics in the warehouse. It's really a huge trend right now. There, uh, there's at least ten commercial organizations right now offering automated robots inside of the warehouse. So I see most of our clients looking very strongly at robotic automation within their warehouse capabilities. Well, and I'll just add on. So in our uh, executive search practice, we, a lot of our clients are manufacturing. And so we're seeing a rise in this robotic and automation as well. And with the, uh, with the robots, there comes a, a huge demand for maintenance technicians and, and maintenance engineers. There is a huge shortage of that. That's correct. That skill set is very unique and very uh, rare right now. And there's a very premium put out put out there to find that talent, that particular skill set. Exactly. To you know, it used to be you know you always have your maintenance engineers that keep all your uh, plant operations and utilities up and running, but now you're adding in the sophistication of robots. Correct. So and you're watching your productivity increase beyond what you could ever get with a human labor force. Right. So that's a kind of a, a new job code that people should look at. I mean, I, I've, had, I've had this debate with people before that I don't think you need to go to college, not for every, not for every profession. If you, really, if you work really well with your hands, you're very mechanical, you can go to a two-year you know, technical college and learn this skill, and you'll be well-employed. You will, you, you will not face um, you know, unemployment because those, 
like you say, you know, the rise of e-commerce is there and these robots are fulfilling that need. Well, and robots have really brought another element. Previously, they were a little high cost, but they could do a lot of different things that humans did in that process. But as those processes became specialized, the high automation and the, you know, the few level of defects that they can produce, they, and they're, they're never taking breaks, is, is remarkable, but now they have, they're also not going to catch a virus and have to call them sick. So they, it's almost like the scales have tipped due to the COVID-19 virus. Well, this, this is good because I really thought we can really narrow our focus down to three major industries. These are all very unique. They all face a kind of a different set of challenges. We think about automotive, retail, and food. I, I would love to kind of get your perspective on, let's say, retail. What is really happening right now in the retail supply chain? I know we've touched on it a little bit with the e-commerce and such, but you know, why has there been has there been a breakdown? Would you say within the retail space? In with considering retail across all retailers, yes. There's there's really two stories here. There's the retailers that are already in the cloud that already had a web presence, already had what's called an omni-channel order system, where they could take an order on your mobile phone in the in the internet when you're in the store at a point of sale or, you know, anywhere pretty much that you can find their, their brand, those organizations have been just fine. And they've been able to pivot to ultimately all of their channels are now focused just on their e-commerce and internet presence. So they, they are, they're going to be just fine. They're going to take a hit obviously because they've got stores and employees that they can't pay and they're on furlough. But they've taken a lot of their stores and turned them into meter warehouses so they have their employees picking orders from the store inventory, packing it up, and then shipping that out. In fact, Kohl's was just in the news recently because FedEx has placed on them a minimum of what they can ship from any particular store um, because there were some imbalances happening within the FedEx network. So I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of retailers that got creative. Now, on the flip side, there's retailers that are going to be out of business and may never come back. And there's a line of them that are now getting ready for bankruptcy, JCPenney, uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, just a few of those. Uh, Macy's may survive. But these organizations with very large footprints, very large overheads are going, to, are going to struggle as they try to pivot to the cloud, but they have such a large physical presence that it's almost impossible for them to avoid bankruptcy and some of those some of those well-known brands will come back some of those brands will be gone forever and um, it's hard to say exactly who the winners will be at this point but there's really two tales going on from the retail channels yeah it doesn't really sound like they they could have done much to prevent this unless they had foreseen just the fact that they have overhead they have labor and looked at amazon and that e-commerce footprint and had they begun to, you know, offer that type of, of, of a website to the consumer, but really there's, there's nothing they could have really done to, pre- to have prevented that, could they? Uh, no, it really, it was just a chance, you know, had they started the journey, it would be easier and more likely of their survival. Their chances of survival are much stronger. Um, but when, when Walmart.com came out around 2008, 2009, um, it was interesting because at that time, they were obviously the biggest company in the world, and they were going to you know, go in there and do the web thing just like Amazon. But Amazon at that point really wasn't that threatening to them when they started it. 
but they kind of knew that they better get in front of this or somebody would come, you know, online to, to come after their business. And they've really been pioneers, both in cloud-based, you know, execution within the supply chain, as well as acquiring, they acquired a company called Jet.com, which was really brilliant in Walmart's place. And then Jet.com became their e-commerce, omni-channel presence on the internet. I mean, your, your heart goes out to them because you know they're, they're hemorrhaging right now cash. And if they have not moved to that cloud-based solution, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you're struggling just to, to, to pay your bills and to maybe keep some employees paid. And then on top of that, you have to now consider making an investment into this new platform. It just seems like a, the worst time to try to make a, a financial decision like that. I don't, I, I don't know if there's any, an easy answer. There is no easy answer, and I think that's the only answer. I mean, obviously, selling out to a private equity firm or someone that will take it, take the brand through their digital journey is another alternative path that's out there. But there's really that's the only path. The only brands that we will see in the future are the ones that make this digital transformation, either now or or in the future under a different brand. There really is no there is no world in the future without a digital presence. I mean, maybe if you were a, a a small retailer, like here in Alpharetta, our town has gone through a huge revitalization. We've had um, this giant kind of luxury high-end mall that moved in, an outdoor mall. And all around that, we have all these little retail shops opening up. And they were, you know, kind of smaller boutiques. And they probably have like an email system, right, where they got all their customers' email addresses. So you could probably, a small firm like that could probably survive you know, emailing your customers, driving them to a new website, something like that, That's right. turning their shop, as you say, like into a warehouse, something like that could work. But yeah, if you've got multiple stores, big footprint, and you've not there, yeah, you're looking at a massive cutback, scaleback. Yeah. I mean, and most of these, I mean, let's be honest, most of these retailers are privately held or, you know, the publicly held ones, may be able to get a bailout, but most likely they'll have to refinance under some sort of new debt structure if they're going to come back. Yeah, they go into bankruptcy protection and then they... That's right. They come out as a different organization. Yeah. But I will give you a good story. Um, Toys R Us Canada is coming back after the COVID. And they, as you know, Toys R Us collapsed about a year ago or so, probably longer now. And that financially, they've gone through the bankruptcy courts, but... The U.S. has not settled out yet, but the, U, the Canadian Toys R Us has got onto an omni-channel platform, and they are planning to reopen new stores in Canada. I think there's like 18 or 20 some stores that they're going to reopen, but it's going to be more of an experience rather than a toy store. So they're not going to have a, a bunch of inventory, but there's going to be all kinds of different interactive um, experiences for you right within the Toys R Us family. And then you can order obviously online and have it delivered. Oh, cool! Experiential. Yeah, that's good. It's like um, FAO shorts. You know, you go into New York City, you just want to go and experience the store, and then you remember it, right? And then you go buy the stuff. So obviously, in the wake of what's happened, people are having to think about how to redesign their supply chain. I think we. I think I think we've kind of handled how companies were going to be redesigning that from a from a retail standpoint. Is there anything else though that that maybe we've we've not touched on or 
Yeah, so that's right. Um, retail, I think that's really going to be the, the story around retailers is, you know, who can get funding? Um, I think you'll see a bunch of startups getting into retail now that some of the traditional players are struggling. And those, you know, well-funded, nimble, you know, fresh startups, I think, are, are going to be really interesting to watch. But they're probably going to be more of a subscription-based type of, a, of a experience. It's going to be fun to, you know, see how those things you know, play out. I really think things like Harry's and uh, the Dollar Shave Club is an interesting thing and their subscription model and how they're going after Gillette, for example, and, and Gillette's huge presence across all of the different retailers across the country. So we'll definitely see more startups and it's going to be interesting with innovation. Well, okay. So you mentioned Harry's and then uh, that subscription model and that made me think of Blue Apron and Plated, those are other subscription models, but they're for food. And you That's right. HelloFresh. Exactly. HelloFresh. So why don't we transition into food? So what caused the disruption in the food supply chain? And maybe just give us a good overview, kind of end to end. What is what comprises the food supply chain and where have been the, the issues? Absolutely. Food is an interesting situation for the US because we have as you mentioned, very different levels of layers of exposure to the, the markets that drive food products and food costs. You have the growers that make the food or make the products, harvest them, they're transported to a, a producer or packaging organization that does something to it, cooks it, bakes it, who knows, packages it, boxes it, and then those go out to distributors distributors hang on to those products so that they can make sure that all of their retail customers are, are, are taken care of. But those retail customers are really restaurants and then the grocery chains, but it's also the food services. If you think of like hotels and schools, a lot of times those have organizations inside of them that are not actually part of the hotel or not actually part of the school, but actually are their own organization. And they're ordering from distributors to have that food product delivered so they can make whatever the breakfast or the lunch specials that they do. And so there's all these different layers that you may be exposed to, but you may not. It's not just the grocery stores that are impacted. The restaurants and then the food services is probably two-thirds of the entire food market in terms of what actually Americans are eating on a day-to-day -day basis. And when the when everything shut down, the food services in the restaurants, two-thirds of that market really collapsed to nothing. And then all of the demand shifted to the you know, third of the market that services the public in grocery stores. Now, obviously, obviously not every restaurant shut down, but the demand shrunk where no one could be able to walk into a restaurant and order something. Everybody went immediately to home delivery. Obviously, the pizza chains, are the volumes are down, but their business operating model is just fine. Bringing pizza to your door is, has not really changed with COVID-19. And the contact delivery is really just an extension of what they were doing anyway. So that really was a minor pivot. But for anybody that was ordering restaurants and, and food services for hotels and airports and things like that, you know, that was a huge demand just evaporated overnight. And it changes the dynamics of how the organizations that deliver the food can make money. Well, you know, what's interesting too is you're talking about um, the supply chain from, 
growing or harvesting all the way to the consumption. Well, if it's a if it's a perishable and it's not something that can be wrapped or stored for for long term, then it spoils. And we've seen a huge problem with spoilage. I think there were some videos online where you were, you were literally watching uh, eighteen wheelers that are designed to carry milk that were just dumping milk out, and everyone was just you know, scratching their head. Like, why, why are you doing that? What, um, do you have any, in, any insight into what's happening here? Yeah. Milk is in and of itself kind of specialized. Don't forget that, um, milk prices have been impacted by the two large bankruptcies of the two largest milk producers in the country. And that's new foods and dairy farmers of America are both in bankruptcy for the last 18 months. They've been trying to merge, but they've been, blocked by antitrust investigators, but ultimately you have this behemoth organization that is oversupplied with milk right now, and they're dumping the product in order to keep the prices somewhat stabilized uh, for their network. So it's really an oversupply. They were really, originally, their volumes were being impacted specifically by California and some of these smaller um, upstart alternatives like Soy milk, almond milk, and things of that nature have really dented some of the national demand, and that's what led those two organizations into bankruptcy. I believe Borden out of Texas is also in bankruptcy. So you have three or three of these major milk producers are struggling financially, and COVID nineteen has obviously just you know destroyed some of that demand even further. And the grocery chains and the people that are ordering are just ordering less and less milk products. Um, all the people that make cheese and butter, from what I can tell, seem to be fully stocked with their milk that they need to make their normal products. So the farmers really have nowhere to go with it. And as for it's, it's an economic decision to dump that milk and keep prices up. Very similar to how the oil businesses are trying to shut off the, the wells right now to stop the production to bring the prices back up because they're oversupplied across the across the world with this oil glut. Yeah, well, that's what uh, the, the Trump administration is trying to do, is trying to get OPEC Plus to to do that. On the other hand, OPEC Plus and Russia, they're actually trying to increase oil production because they want to flood the U.S. market and put our shale and our energy business, our energy industry underwater, just wipe them out completely. Then they can take over the entire market and raise prices and own it again. So they're they have a um, kind of a, I almost call that a sinister, <laughs> uh, a very cutthroat. Yep. No, I, I think you're right on. I, I, yep. And I think it was specifically targeted American shale producers. Well, true, because shale, um, I had a podcast on this earlier. Shale is a very expensive to produce because it's that horizontal fracking. So you're looking at at least $50 a barrel just to break even. And right now prices are you know, in the twenties, whatever it is now. So, um, I know we're not, today's not, we're not talking about oil and things like that, but it is a similar case. So the dumping of the milk was simply economic. Well, cause I, we do know there is a, a massive problem happening, uh, with, with animals. We talked about that a little bit before the, um, the mature, the mature animals have nowhere to go in the harvest process. Right. Right. I mean, they're ready to go and we're going to see, uh, we are going to see a massive, uh, shortage of, of beef and pork and chicken. I know you probably have seen it there in Texas. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but um, I am kind of 
I'm a, I'm a dissipated Really? Because like we go into the stores and they tell you, you know, you can only buy one or two of these products, right? And they they literally do not let you buy more than like two packages of chicken. Hmm. I haven't seen that yet. Um, in fact, I bought three or four packets of bacon a couple days ago. Well, I'm not I, I'm not advocating hoarding. I don't advocate hoarding. <laughs> Absolutely. But I do, but I do believe you need, you know, people do need to be aware that there is going to be a really, a big problem with uh, beef, pork, and chicken because, in that supply chain, they're they reach maturity and they have to go to the processing plants, and the processing plants are, are shut down. That's correct, and and ultimately, right? I mean, market conditions will dictate, you know, where that food goes and and how much, you know. Ultimately, the price is going to rise. I think we all have seen that across the country. That will happen. And it's just going to be a matter of time until those organizations that supply the meat products can get back to business as usual or businesses, at least, um, you know, with social distancing, economically viable. Yeah, I mean, at at least back to 50% capacity. Yeah, I don't really want to get started on uh, why I think prices are going to rise. Prices are going to rise, obviously, just because of the situation that we've been talking about. But then you add in the fact that our government, the Federal Reserve, is printing money hand over fist. Um, That's going to show up as well in inflation. So yeah, we're going to have definitely a rise in in cost. Absolutely. And I think, you know, unfortunately, Americans are going to get that experience, right? You know, after surviving and, and pinching pennies to just make it through this unemployment way that's rushing across the country but hopefully we can get most people back to work and you know back on track in the, in the third quarter fourth quarter of this year but ultimately it's um, across the supply chain it's it's starting to you're starting to see impacts where people are are putting you know entire entire sites on furlough if the, you know depending on what the customers are doing so i think the one that's probably the most impacted that's going to feel the most pain is Boeing. In their, in their supply chain, because not only are they not getting more orders for new planes, but they've got all those seven, uh, 57 MAX planes that have nowhere to go, and that whole experience has not really been fully flushed out. So Let's just say one of us might have been a shareholder in Boeing and might have seen the stock price fall two-thirds. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting hammered. That may not be over yet. No, no. And uh, I don't like the idea of buying high, selling low. That's, <laughs> that's not a good, ra- no. not a good strategy in the equities market. That's um, right. Let's, um, as we kind of get toward the end of our overview of kind of what's happening in these different segments, let's, let's talk about automotive. And I, I will say something just literally came out just before you and I started the podcast today. George's largest uh, privately held company is Cox Enterprises, and Cox Enterprises is a holding company. One of their holding companies is Cox Automotive, and Cox Automotive, they're they're steeply involved in not just software and technology, but they but they work with car dealers all across the country. They just furloughed twelve thousand five hundred people as of this week. That's right. So the automotive industry is uh, in a world of hurt right now. Now, interesting enough, Cox is involved with the uh, secondhand dealer auctions. And this is the place where dealers go to 
get rid of the trade-ins that they buy from you and I when we get new cars. Um, they'll take, the, take those to auction. The auction's where they'll you know get that inventory off their books. Someone else will take it that will deal with it. But anyway, that that whole Cox Automotive is going to have a devastating impact to dealers because of, and in, impact their ability to take trade-ins. Even while a lot of dealers, especially I don't know nationwide, but Dallas Fort Worth, the dealers seem to be humming along. Uh, the dealers in Texas seem to be avoiding too much damage um, in the short term. My listeners know this, but I used to be—I I was the, um, the the manager of executive search over at Cox Enterprises, and one of my customers was was Cox Automotive, and we handled a lot of their executive searches. And as part of our just experience of knowing more about how Cox Automotive worked, Cox Auto worked, uh, we all got to go down and spend spend a day at the auction. And that was a blast watching all the, the car dealers in there auctioning um, and bidding for the used cars for their lots. We didn't, act, we didn't actually watch the dealers bringing in their cars. But from what I understand, if you can get your car to roll down the lot, <laughs> they'll accept it. So it could be a total clunker drop, drop in oil, but as long as you can get it to start and, and roll down, they'll, they'll take it. So, so here in Georgia, part of our staffing business, we, we supply production workers for um, automotive. And so down in South Georgia, we've got Kia and Hyundai. And of course, up in Michigan, there's, uh, you know, Fiat and Chrysler. All these have been just shut down, right? I mean, they have suspended operations where there's going to be a, uh, a gap for sure. That's right. And that's causing havoc throughout the parts networks. Um, that's where most of my automotive background is, is the parts collection that happen at the plants that go out and, and essentially source the parts that are going to be fed into the plant for that particular day. And most plants, most automotive plants today are just in time. In fact, I don't know of any that are not just in time. And what just-in-time refers to is the parts that are going to be put on the car that day arrive just in time for them to essentially take the parts and put them right into the car as the car is moving down the assembly line. And that fine-tuned precision has really been broken by COVID-19 because now the part supply is not reliable, the logistics companies are struggling, sometimes with capacity or drivers, and parts are definitely being caught up at the border within the, the customs clearance process and just the, the backlog that's been building up. So you really can't talk about the U.S. automotive industry without talking about Mexico and so many of the parts that are made in Mexico and then brought to the U.S. and then vice versa, U.S. parts that are made in the U.S. that are going down to feed the Mexican automotive plants. That that trade lane alone is, is so massive, um, it, it's really hard not to... To talk about one without the other. Now, the good news is Mexico's plants are all starting up as of Monday. Now, I don't, I shouldn't say all, but most of them, and I do believe that that's very controversial right now in Mexico. They've got um, that the wave of coronavirus is really spreading right now. Um, it's, it's peaking across Mexico. So the people are struggling, but at the same time, the, everyone knows they've got to get back to work and no one wants to lose their job. Um, because there's a lot of people that will end up getting those jobs if, if you're not able to go to work, right? So it's, it's do or die time for, for the worker. 
It's a really tough, it, it is such a tough situation. And I don't know ex- the exact number, but that's, you know, 28,000 parts or whatever to build a car. So it's the little five cent washer that prevents your $75,000 car from being made. It, it can, if, you know, ultimately there's three PLs or logistics providers that are, you know, out there getting a charter flight to fly those washers from, you know, Hamburg or Shanghai or wherever they make the washers. And they're going to have them there because the penalty to stop the line is something like a hundred thousand dollars a minute. Right. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how much money that logistics company will have to pay if they shut the line down for a lack of parts. Well, and, and I guess what I meant by that is that if, if COVID breaks out in your washer, plant or any one of the plants, you have to shut your plant down. You physically cannot produce. Well, every supplier or every, let me rephrase that, every automotive company has a team of purchase agents, for lack of a better term. And those, those guys are called buyers. And those buyers have each supply, each washer has three or four source points that they have contracted as primary, secondary, tertiary so that they have like fail safes if they can't get something from that washer because it's shut down in shanghai then the hamburg location becomes the next washer order point and they've got an escalation process in place so they have these alternative so it's a so that, that that's kind of interesting so if you if you think about the thousands of parts that are required to build a car and then you have to have these alternative contracts set up to prevent any disruption in the supply chain. I mean, think about how many companies you actually have to have con- under contract to make this thing. That's right. It, it's quite staggering. And then now there are a lot of trends or efforts for these organizations to provide more than one part. So you start to see these tier one automotive juggernauts. Um, one that everyone used to know was called Delphi, which was one of the GM part organization they have you know they probably have 50 60 80 different parts that they produce um i can't remember the one right off hand for chrysler um but um but each one of them had kind of a parts organization that they leaned on for their primary parts and then they had you know alternative providers for stuff that wasn't as you know specific but more and more of those cars and more and more of the parts providers in and of themselves they provide quite more than just a part now. They provide, you know, beyond the support, but they're part of the R&D, the research and development, and bringing new materials into the parts discussion. Um, Ford and GM and, and obviously Chrysler and Fiat are both, you know, really pushing their parts organizations and provider networks to be innovative and come up with new things that are lighter weight but still meet their strict standards. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like any, any of these companies could have really done anything differently in the automotive space because they already had multiple parts organizations set up as alternative supply points. Correct. I, I believe the impact on automotive was almost entirely around the human element of COVID in the sense they couldn't get the workers, uh, you know, you couldn't put the workers in risk. You couldn't ensure that they were going to be safe. And at the same time, as you know, Ford, GM are pivoting to start making ventilators and face masks and PPE to keep their people employed because they can't really, you can't ensure everyone's going to be safe making cars. And then 
the ripple effect of all the parts having to go through the same decision criteria of how do we keep their plants open, how do we keep their product moving into the warehouses, how do the warehouses keep picking orders and making sure that parts are getting to the line just in time. There's, there's a whole ripple effect. Let's see if we can transition into kind of our, the, the, the final phase of, of our discussion is, you know, what what do you think the types of career opportunities are going to exist in supply chain as a result of what we've seen? Is there is there anything new that's going to be created or we're just going to see more of the same? I mean, what's your, your perspective on this? Um, I believe that supply chain will become a cloud native or a cloud primary point of access where most supply chain companies either software companies or logistics companies will be measuring their talent based on how good are your skills with those products they find in the cloud. So the, the TMSs, the WMSs, the ERPs, their systems folks will be measured on what skill sets they have. And more and more of the logistics people will be knowledge-based, but will also be technology workers of some sort. And it's really going to be data-oriented making sure the data is clean, making sure the data is complete, making sure that you know it's, the reporting is done properly, making sure the customer experience is thought through and designed properly. Right. So uh, any kind of role around helping companies transition to the cloud? Well, a lot of what you're doing as a consultant that's right. for the company you work for, that that's part of that uh, expansion it's the value we bring to the conversation is that we've done this for a very large organization previously, and it's very easy for us to put together a plan of action of how to select your product, how to implement the product to meet the best in class, make sure you get the best practices, and then to look across your, really your, your systems landscape to ensure that your products are working um, together in such a way that your data integrity and your data formatting is giving you the benefit of the big data experience. And I know that's a lot of jargon, but ultimately there's a lot of effort that goes into making sure that the data that everybody's handling in your in your in your phone, your handset, or on your computer, you know, think of a bank. I mean, it's important that every time you open it up and look, the data matches what's actually in your bank account. It has to be accurate 100 percent of the time. So there's a lot of effort behind the scenes to ensure that data integrity is there from the, whether you're looking from the, the app all the way through to getting an invoice, um, that entire experience has to ultimately be concise and accurate every time. Well, I know we won't have time to go into it to, today, but it sure will be interesting to talk about blockchain at some point, because that's what a lot of what you're talking about with the data and having it be authenticated and having it be there. Um, that's, I, I know that's one of your areas of expertise and I know we really can't get into that, but maybe, um, yeah, blockchain is quite interesting and, and quite transformational. If, if done correctly, big data and blockchain can completely establish the trust factor that every brand, every public organization wants with the public. They want the trust. They want to know that that is going to be their product or their service delivered as they anticipated and expected. I think a lot of people hear about blockchain and they think Bitcoin. 
Yes, Bitcoin is what made blockchain famous for the, you know, ultimately the distributed ledger having a record of the same transactions in multiple places where nobody, no single person has control of the ledger. It's, it's revolutionary and it has the potential to transform the transportation industry specifically around the visibility that it offers to the trading partners, knowing that when the transaction occurred, it's recorded on the ledger and no one single person has control of the ledger. All of us that are using that technology are recorded to a ledger and therefore it's trusted because we're all using the same technology and it's you know encrypted so we know it can we're insured of the validity of what that data represents. Is there a career in this in the in this kind of burgeoning field? Um, I think the answer is yes. However, I don't think it's called you know blockchain as a, as a as a job. I believe it falls under computer science, computer programming, development, or something called DevOps. DevOps. And this is just a, another tool in your toolkit. Um, you already, if you're into developing software and you already have skills around coding and testing and you know, quality assurance, this is just going to be another arrow in that quiver in that particular job category. Well, one of the questions that I, I had was you want to get into supply chain or let's say you, you have some experience in supply chain. This is my way of thinking, is it better to work for a consumer products company, which obviously they have, you know, enormous supply chains. You can learn a lot in a CPG, or should you work at a consulting firm like you and you have varied experiences? You're not tied to one company. You're fixing multiple problems. I know maybe it's a preference, but maybe you can give us kind of, you know, your opinion. Is it better to work for one or the other? Maybe there's some pros, some cons. Um. <clears throat> I think there's pros and cons to both. Uh, specifically, if you're specifically interested in a supply chain oriented career, I would suggest looking at a logistics oriented business, someone that runs warehouses or someone that runs transportation fleets or even a transportation broker. And you'll learn more about logistics because you're learning about your customers' logistics and you're seeing multiple different customers. So your breadth and depth of logistics knowledge will continue to be expanded every day when you come to work. If you were to work for a consumer packaged good organization, logistics might just be one stop on your rotation of having you spend time with marketing and logistics and you know at the retail store or whatever your particular organization is, you know, it's not gonna give you the breadth and depth of the industry. It's only gonna give you kind of one look from within one organization. Now Depending on how big the organization, you may get to see logistics for different products. One, some could be like, uh, you know, I, I use the P&G example. One day you're looking at Tide and liquid detergent, and you know, two weeks later you could be at a Char, uh, I don't know, Charmin facility making toilet paper, right? With two different products, but both are products and brands, and kind of have their own infrastructure and overhead that you have to understand logistically. But you, but for example, you wouldn't understand the logistics of toilet paper just from working in that one station, right? vice versa for you know, liquid detergent, you wouldn't be an expert on the logistics of that just from spending that one particular time there. But it is important to understand how logistics plays, logistics supply chain plays with all the other pieces of an organization and how that enables their go-to-market strategy by having the products available 
whether they're at the store or now it's at a warehouse, fulfilling an order to someone's residential delivery. Um, as you see, supply chain just adapts to where the market and the demand is leading it. When we saw that crash in demand, everyone kind of looked around, what are we going to do? And then immediately the organizations that could pivoted to making deliveries from their stores to your home or from their warehouse to your home, they're still going to make the delivery, they're still going to make the sale. They're not going to lose any, they're not going to lose business, but they're not going to have as much demand as they did previous to COVID-19 for some Well, it definitely sounds like unless you have a chance to work for a, a big Fortune 5 consumer products company, your, your exposure and your, the breadth of experiences will be limited versus working for, a, say, a broker because you get to see all the needs from all the different customers, learning all the different you know, solutions that have to be created for all the different industries. So that gives you a huge... Uh, exposure, which which is what I was yes. thinking from the consulting side. I was thinking you'd get that in the consulting side as well. So, how would you compare brokerage first consulting, brokerage first consulting? The big obvious difference is consultants. You're independent. You're actually doing the work. The broker is actually doing it. You know, winning and dying every day on every call with every customer. A consultant is really there, looking at their technology, ensuring that the They've got the you know the right features and functionalities to meet their objectives, financial objectives. And most brokers that are bringing in consultants, they're looking to scale their business so that they can bring on maybe ten or twenty new brokers. But those ten or twenty new brokers are going to be you know highly productive, eighty ninety percent of the time you know driving revenue through their organization. They're not really bringing consultants in unless they can either drive that you know quick rapid growth. Or they can find some additional large cost saving benefit by consolidating two systems into one, or potentially taking one system out with an alternative that's a much lower cost but has some unique features that make it a, a more valuable option for the enterprise. Well, you're certainly the right guy to talk to about this. I think it's a it's it's such a massive industry, every uh, well, uh, sector, every industry has all its own unique nuances. And I think you've just kind of touched on the surface of, of some of these for us among automotive, retail, food. Why don't we transition into, uh, to really tell us a little bit about this uh, non-for-profit that you've started. It's, it's very interesting. Karma Delivers. I'll put, uh, I'll put some, uh, I'll put a link to Karma Delivered in our um, exclusive Facebook group, uh, Career Daily Podcast, that you can find on Facebook, so the listeners can go in and, and find that. So, tell us a little bit more about what, what was your inspiration behind Karma Delivers, and tell us a little bit about what you're what you're trying to give back to the community with this non for profit. Absolutely, and thank you for this opportunity. So, Karma Delivers is my passion and what I really like to bring to the world. And Karma Delivers is a collection of about six or seven volunteers. Most of them are my friends that I've met through my career in the logistics industry. And we all kind of watch in horror as Hurricane Katrina went through and, and really created a, a natural disaster that we've never seen before. And then obviously it was even worse watching the, nat the, the human disaster unfold with, and then the logistics disaster of FEMA coming in and, and, 
having all of those homes that were not used. And there were stories of truckers that were paid $4 a mile to bring ice into the to the areas where people were impacted. Only when they got there, there was no one to unload them, so the ice just melted. Uh, I mean, it was just exactly not the way to handle things logistically. So we decided that we would get together and create the framework for Karma Delivers so that organizations tip that are impacted by natural disasters have someone to reach out to in the logistics community when they're rebuilding. So we're not really responders to the natural disasters. There's plenty of people out there responding, like Red Cross, like FEMA, organizations that are well-funded to go out and save lives. But once those organizations are done saving lives, they typically pack up and move on because those resources aren't dedicated to rebuilding. They're just there to save them. Then the community looks around and there's no one there to help rebuild. So Karma Delivers is organized specifically to come in and help those organizations that are tasked with rebuilding churches and playgrounds and building community rec centers. And the idea behind it is that a lot of those organizations are left on their own. So we're bringing them some technology expertise, we're bringing them logistics knowledge, and we're bringing them access to commercial truckers so that they can ultimately get some of the benefits of having a trucker pick up a load and bring it to their community and, all, and essentially be part of the rebuilding effort. So it's really about rebuilding. It's really about after natural disasters. We also have decided to really pivot to attack some of the challenges we see across the urban environments with food deserts. So we come up with a plan where we go out and get real estate as a donation from an urban environment where it's bleak, depleted and not taken care of. We either tear, tear down the existing structure or we'll just, it's usually a, a vacant lot is what we'll start with. And then we'll build up a, a greenhouse with aeroponics vertically and we'll put enough equipment in there that that little tiny greenhouse can be viable as a commercial greenhouse to support local restaurants with farm to table as an organic farm. So we bring the farming knowledge, we bring the construction of the greenhouse, and we're really there to help that community take something that was empty and turn it into something that's generating food, generating jobs, something that they can harvest. I personally want to be able to get a blockchain of the food that comes out of these greenhouses so that we can publish that as within the growing, net, growing network of growers using their data on the blockchain to ensure food quality, that it's local, and that it was essentially who the owner or grower was for that particular product. I think you were saying something too. It was kind of interesting that having that technology, you can see where the supply is. And if the final destination now no longer needs it, you can quickly divert it and put it somewhere else so it doesn't spoil, like you talked about with that with that expensive yes. uh, expensive ice truck to bring all the ice in and have it melt. Had it been on this uh, technology platform, it could have been seen. We have a need identified. That's correct, and you would correct. And I don't know if you recall the situation in Puerto Rico recently, where they had an earthquake, and that earthquake. Um, had some damage to one building. They found a whole warehouse of supplies for the hurricane that had never been um, distributed. Now, most likely it was just forgotten about. They forgot the, they had all these supplies here in this warehouse. I don't know how we forget about it, but ultimately the people now know that those supplies were there and were not distributed. 
if they were had a blockchain of their eight products, that would have been identified that those products were available on the ledger and could have been you know sourced to been for distribution on the island at some point. I think the um, that commercial greenhouse idea is really unique because when an area is hard hit, what they need most is fresh water and fresh food. Correct. And the knowledge and the job responsibility to grow the food. It doesn't, it's not going to grow in one day and then feed people's, you know, hunger in that same day. It's true. You need people there to tend it, tend it and, and uh, prune it. And, and harvest it. So there's multiple job categories that are required plus bringing it to market and making sure that it's commercially viable. So you're, you're making money from your harvest so that you can then take care of your nonprofit organization and the constituency that you serve. Now, you mentioned the real estate often is, is donated. Are the other supplies donated as well to actually build the greenhouse and the seeds that, that are needed and the, the planters and the equipment? Yes, oftentimes that's correct. Uh, we've run into some funding issues, and we're about to bring out a uh, crowdfunding application. So we're, we're looking to do just that, it's fun, and it's specifically for the equipment that will go into the greenhouse. Uh, it's these these garden towers that will grow up um, to about six feet. And then I think there's about 19 or 20 different vegetables that can grow inside of these commercial. What's the life cycle of this commercial greenhouse? So once it's up and running, does it just kind of remain as part of Karma Delivers or is it transitioned to the community? What, what, what happens with it? It transitions to the community. Yep. Karma Delivers really just brings in the expertise and the fundraising and the equipment but the, the actual land, the actual greenhouse belongs to the community. That's great. Now, you also say you're, you're doing some work with, with food banks. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, just recently, I've run into someone that runs a global food bank um, consultancy, and we're working to develop a food bank traceability visibility project that would work across a couple of major cities in developing countries. And what it would do is, is it would track the pickup and delivery of, don of food donations. And we'd be able to then see on the ledger what was picked up, what was delivered. And consumption can test, you know, for consumption rates, but you could also then um, look for areas of opportunity to, you know, expand that network so that we can create a bigger impact and have more people that are benefiting from food and fresher, fresher food. There, there's such a huge need there. Like if I pull into the grocery store early in the morning, there's always a some guy. I, I don't know who he is. He's got a van and he pulls up and he he's on. He's taking all the, you know, not produce. He the ba you know bakery goods, things that are near expiring. Yep, and maybe just one day old. But there's a market. There, you know, most likely he's reselling. But if he's going to a food bank, then obviously that's typically just donated and. No, no money transactions. Yeah, but imagine having this huge network of data where you could see where all the needs were. You might even be able to kind of reverse engineer it where you see there are, you know, huge needs for this food bank. And, oh, by the way, there are grocery stores that are within five miles or ten miles that, that maybe have never been approached to supply to that food bank. But now that, you know, you have that visibility or, as you say, there's another – uh, food bank that maybe has an oversupply. I don't know. 
right, then you could transfer it to that area of need because you can see, hey, we're having a consumption spike in this area Correct. where that, you know, never existed before. Is that kind of what the other benefits of this um, platform could bring? I believe yes, but I'm, ultimately I believe it's to bring the visibility and awareness to government organizations for proper funding. And I think if you could show them the data, I think there'd be a lot more congressmen willing to invest, you know, taxpayer money right. to fund some of that is my guess. Um, because if you can show the benefits, then it's, it's an easy conversation. And I think the public gets it. Right. Well, it sounds like you're still kind of developing that final thought for the food banks, but the, uh, correct. That's still a process. Yeah, then you're still kind of working um, through that. So that's right. We're working through the design. Well, that's really, really exciting. Now within that, the part of the business that's up and running, do you have any needs? Are there needs for, uh, for donations, for volunteers? Is there anything that any of us can do once people hear this, that they want to maybe get involved or help? Is there, you know, you know, what's, What's there for us to do to help you? So I think there's two things, really. The, the first ask, we're trying to set up our, our third greenhouse in Detroit, in inner city Detroit. Um, we're going to be running a crowdfunding campaign coming up here in the next few weeks. So we can circle back with you and, and have your audience um, you know, have access to that and participate. That would be wonderful. And then ultimately, if there's really someone in the audience that has a project or has an idea that they'd like to, you know, let's say they'd like to host a community garden greenhouse solution in their neighborhood. We'd be, you know, really love, we really interested to speak with them about how Carmen Delivers can bring our expertise and volunteers to, you know, make that project, turn that project into a reality. Wow. That is great. So pretty much any urban environment where, you know, there's a need, Right. And there's a, a shortage or there's, you know, it's being underserved. That's a great opportunity, right? That's right. Or somebody that owns property that wants to see it turned into something that's going to help the community. And we would come in and convert that property into a community greenhouse. So it just might be that they have land and they want to donate it. It's not, not necessarily that there's a lack of that food, but they just want to put that land to better use. That's right. That's great. Well, I look forward to learning more about that. And the, the, the food bank project sounds really interesting. Maybe when that gets up and running, we can, we can have another segment on karma delivers and, you know, kind of help with that crowdfunding project you're working on as well. That would be wonderful. Well, we'd love the opportunity to come back and speak to you again. Well, that's great, Michael. We all really appreciate your time and we'll have, uh, you know, links to the show notes and, if people want to contact you, we can put your, you know, your LinkedIn information in the uh, Facebook group as well. So if people want to reach out, they have more questions, they can do that. Now you're also a consultant. So I'm just curious, do you ever take any, you know, uh, side projects as a consultant, someone listening to this, they're, they're running a business and they think they need help. Is that something that uh, they could reach out to you or we would just funnel that through your, your business? Uh, yeah, just that would come through my business, but uh, ultimately if there's a project out there that I can help on, I would love to be able to serve your, your audience or your community. That's great. Well, Michael, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Don't forget, head over to LinkedIn and follow me and then go to Facebook and join the exclusive Career Daily Facebook group. 
That's where I'll have links to the show notes and all the people and companies that we've discussed today. 